the year is 988. Emissaries of Vladimir, Grand Prince of Kiev, have been sent out on a vitally important mission. Their orders are to find among the various nations a new religion which will be able to lure their tribes away from servitude to the cruel gods of their fathers and which can forge them into one people, praising one creator with one voice, one heart, and one mind. After many months of searching, these emissaries of Vladimir finally find what they had been looking for within the walls of the great imperial church of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. They sent the following report home. The Greeks led us to the edifices where they worship their God, and we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. For on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We know only that God dwells there among men, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations. For we cannot forget that beauty. Fast forward to about a thousand years later, to rural Kentucky, 1941. A young Bohemian writer, a recent convert to Catholicism, arrives at the Abbey of Gethsemane in order to consider a vocation to the monastic life. Early in the morning, before the dawn, he witnesses simultaneous celebrations of Holy Mass by an army of priest monks. The experience somehow hits the young man with the full force of a mystical revelation, akin to the lifting of the veil separating heaven from earth. The overpowering atmosphere of prayer so fervent that they were almost tangible, he says, choked me with love and reverence to the point where I could only get the air in gasps. Here, he writes, even though, even through ordinary channels, came to me graces that overflowed, that overwhelmed me like a tidal wave, truths that drowned me with the force of their impact, and all through the plain, normal means of the liturgy. But the liturgy used properly, with reverence, by souls inured to sacrifice. The eloquence of this liturgy was even more tremendous, and what it said was one simple, cogent, tremendous truth. This church, the court of the Queen of Heaven, is the real capital of the country in which we are living. This is very interesting, considering the interesting political situation that America's in at the moment. This is the center of all the vitality that is in America. This is the cause and reason why the nation is holding together. These men, hidden in the anonymity of their choir and their white cowls, are doing for their land what no army, no Congress, no president could ever do as, as such. They are winning for it the grace and the protection and the friendship of God. Reflecting on this first experience of monastic worship, Father Lewis Martin Merton remarks, certainly one thing the monk does not or cannot realize is the effect which these liturgical functions performed by a group as such have upon those who see them. The lessons, the truths, 
the incidents and values portrayed are simply overwhelming. So I open with these stories, on one hand from 10th century Russia, and on the other hand from tw the 20th century American South, to illustrate something which I believe is absolutely central and crucial to the challenge of the carrying out of the new evangelization. The leading of souls along the Via Pulchritudinis, a glimpse of that heavenly splendor that so seduced the Kievan pagans to Christ and caused a young American man to leave all and take up his cross in the obscurity of the cloister. And where better to find a school of Catholic spirituality so thoroughly infused with a sense of this primacy than in traditional monasticism? If, as history shows, monasticism was the spiritual engine of the old evangelization of Europe, then it stands to reason that a healthy, robust, renewed monasticism might once again become for the church a source of inspiration and new vitality as she labors for the turning of believers and unbelievers alike to Christ, so that they with St. Ambrose can say, face to face, thou hast made thyself known to me, O Christ, for I have found thee in thy mysteries. Cardinal Ratzinger once wrote, how we attend to liturgy determines the fate of the faith and the church. When we cannot pray aright, we as a church cannot think aright, we cannot live aright, and we certainly cannot evangelize aright. If there is some kind of malfunction in the church's approach to the sacred mysteries, there will always be a corresponding malfunction in the church's ability to evangelize. This is a serious betrayal of the mandate we have been given by the church to become true agents of the new evangelization. In this vein, Bishop Dominique Ray writes, the new evangelization is not an idea or a program. It is a demand that each of us comes to know the person of Christ more profoundly and by doing so become more able to lead others to him. The only way to begin to do this is through the sacred liturgy. And if the liturgy is somehow not as it should be, or I am not properly prepared, this encounter with Christ will be impeded. The new evangelization will suffer. The new evangelization, says Bishop Ray, is not a plot or a scheme, but a way of being by which the faithful, having met Christ in his mysteries, can then communicate him to others. It is for this reason that there is a profound need for all of the Catholic faithful to be exposed to the fullness of liturgical life, a fullness which can be found nowhere better than in the monastic tradition. Monks stand daily before the throne of God in Medio Ecclesiae as living examples of how one can become an adorer in spirit and in truth, how earthbound men and women can pierce through the visible veil of creation to be caught up through Christ to the love of things invisible. Let nothing be preferred to the work of God. Nikil operi dei preponatur. All of us, at least in the liturgical field, are familiar with this maxim of the epoch-making rule of St. Benedict, chapter 43. 
In the monastery, says the rule, nothing whatsoever is to be put before the work of God, which is the sacred liturgy, that great work which God does in us by means of the rites and ceremonies of the church. The monk's entire life, writes Dom Jean Leclerc, is led under the sign of the liturgy, in rhythm with its hours, its seasons, and its feasts, and it is dominated by the desire to glorify God in everything, and first of all, by celebrating his mysteries. The monk is par excellence the homo liturgicus and the homo eucharisticus. The primary profession of the monk is to be a partaker in the great prayer of Christ in and through his bride, the church. Monks, then, never chant alone. Their song is the song of Christ, the head, on behalf of his members. It is the manifestation in this earthly exile of that eternal heavenly hymn which the great high priest has himself intoned, joining the entire community of mankind to himself, associating it with his own singing of this canticle of praise. That's a quote from Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 83. Like that other famous saying of Prosper of Aquitaine, legem credendi lex statuat supplicandi, let the law of praying establish the law of believing, St. Benedict's little saying is rightly regarded in the liturgical field as an axiom of church life. The church is above all a praying community whose very existence is generated by the celebration in every place of that great prayer of the church, the Most Holy Eucharist. In the church, the proper order of things is first liturgy, then belief, and finally living, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. We do not begin with an abstract idea of what we believe, and then seek to incarnate that idea in our liturgical expression. Nor do we begin with determining how we want to live and then craft our prayer and our, our, and our beliefs accordingly. Nothing, not even our doctrine and our moral life, is to be put before the work of God. To upset the proper order here is to risk destroying an extremely delicate balance in the church's life and mission. As I said before, liturgically-minded Catholics are familiar with his statement of St. Benedict concerning the priority of the work of God. Fewer of us, however, are familiar with the fact that Pope Benedict XVI, in his farewell address to the clergy of Rome, pointed out that this little saying of the Holy Patriarch is, in fact, the hermeneutical key which unlocks the meaning of the entire Second Vatican Council. Quote, this phrase from the rule thus emerges as the supreme rule of the council. Some have made the criticism that the council spoke of many things, but not of God. It did speak of God, and this is the first thing that it did. Unquote. Indeed, the council quite literally put nothing before the work of God by electing to begin its work on the 4th of December 1963, not with ecclesiology or ecumenism or religious liberty, but with the constitution on the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. As Pope Benedict also pointed out, 
The incipit slash title of the Constitution is by no means accidental. It begins sacro sanctum concilium, this most sacred council, as if to say, let us begin at the beginning with the work which God does in the world through his mysteries. The priority of the liturgy is therefore the lens through which the council fathers wished the entire council to be viewed. If, as they desired, there is to be a profound renewal of the church's vocation in the modern world, it must begin not with theological or moral abstractions, but with the concrete revitalization of the church's liturgy. Echoing St. Benedict's maxim, the council boldly declared the sacred liturgy to be, quote, the summit towards which the activity of the church is directed. At the same time, it is the fount from which all her power flows. Paragraph 10. Pope Benedict, whose choice of name as successor of Peter is hardly accidental, commenting on the beginning of the Constitution in the introduction to his collected works on the liturgy, writes, the words of the Benedictine rule, ergo nikel operi dei proponantur, apply specifically to monasticism, but as a statement of priority, they are also true for the life of the church and of each of its members, each in his own way. It is perhaps useful to recall that in the term orthodoxy, the second half of the word doxa does not mean opinion, but splendor, glorification. This is not a matter of a correct opinion about God, but of a proper way of glorifying him, of responding to him. Because this is the fundamental question of the man who begins to understand himself in the correct way, how should I encounter God? So learning the right way of adoration, of orthodoxy, is what is given to us above all by the faith." Unquote. It is the liturgy, said the Council Fathers, which is the source and summit of all the Church's power and activity in the world, including all of her missionary efforts. The monastic cloister, therefore, far from being irrelevant or peripheral to the work of evangelization, has everything to contribute to the new evangelization. The Supreme Pontiff who called the Second Vatican Council, St. John XXIII, said as much to an assembly of abbots of the Benedictine order in 1959 on the eve of the council. It is only from the holy pursuit of prayer, he says, that strength can be drawn, which descends from the heavenly dwellings, and which is the one thing that has power to nourish the monastic life and to bring forth saving fruits for life everlasting. The Psalter, or to speak more accurately, the collection of prayers and pious readings, which you either recite or sing daily with alternating voices, nourishes the life of monks in a particular way and must be their primary form of apostolate. For it is not merely by doing and being busy with things, but above all by praying day and night, as you are wont to do, that you can bring about the eternal salvation of others, especially of those who, distracted by external affairs, do not relish heavenly things, and who either abandon the sacred temples altogether, or else only visit them as artistic monuments. Good Pope John, 
it would seem, is speaking here about the new evangelization many years before the term was coined by St. John Paul II, 1990s Redemptoris Missio. Only a few years before the inauguration of the Council, John XXIII brings to the fore the example of liturgical worship in the obscurity of the cloister as being crucial in the winning of souls, particularly those of Christians themselves who have ceased to relish of heavenly things. The Pope goes on to exhort the Benedictine abbots thus, Therefore, let the liturgical chants to which you devote your time be examples and, as it were, invitations by which you may entice all whom you can pursue the good things on high which last forever and by which you may obtain an abundant reign of graces from the most merciful God. According to Papa Roncalli, monks evangelize not so much by outward works, which are secondary and external to their vocation, but simply by being what they are, silent yet eloquent signposts for believers and unbelievers alike, pointing the way towards the life of the world to come. If you wish, you can become all flame, said Abba Lot to Abba Joseph. Monks, in the oblation of their whole being in pure adoration, are called like Abba Joseph to become all flame, a burning and a shining light in the midst of the dark and cold of an unbelieving world. As Dom Jeremy Driscoll writes, the monastery itself is the word of evangelization. Monasteries attract, he continues. This is at least part of the instinct that urges monks with an evangelizing spirit to establish a monastery. What they establish will attract the attention of those to whom the gospel is addressed. But this does not always happen in some literal or direct way. In fact, in some cases, at least what is attractive, perhaps, is that the message of Christ is not necessarily directly announced, but the monastery simply exists in its own right. Monks, in their utter dedication to the work of God, are living reminders before the face of all men of the primacy of God. The monastic community, a family of men or women who journey towards God together, is a dramatic sign to both church and world that God is alive and active and that he is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. One of the consistent themes of the preaching of Pope Francis has been the necessity of the church being outwardly oriented, coming out of itself. The church, according to Francis, is always in danger of becoming self-referential, turning in on itself and thus away from its mission to seek out the sheep of Christ wherever they may be. In this, the Pope simply echoes the Second Vatican Council's decree ad gentes. Quote, the pilgrim church is missionary by her very nature. As laudable as this emphasis is, there would seem to be a real danger of overemphasizing the external, so-called active aspect of evangelization to the detriment of the actual source of mission's very dynamism, which is the sacred mysteries. It is important to note that the same decree ad gentes situates Christian mission first and foremost 
in the divine life of the Holy Trinity. The outward economic mission of the Son and the Spirit in the world mirrors the hidden, unapproachable, ineffable, inward mission of the two divine persons from the unbegotten Father. The eternal generation of the Son from the bosom of the Father and the procession of the Spirit from the Father through the Son. In the mind of the Church, therefore, mission comes forth first and foremost as the flow of divine life from the Father through his two hands, his Word and his Spirit, to use an image of St. Irenaeus, which reaches us through the celebration of the Holy Mysteries. Missionary activity is merely the application of the grace which flows into the church through the liturgy itself. The liturgy is, to borrow the striking imagery of Jean Corbon, is nothing else than the spilling over of divine life into the realm of creation, the ebb and flow of living water which draws all men and all things back to the heart of the Father. In this sense, as Corbon also points out, the hiding place of the monastic vocation is, in fact, in the front lines of the eschatological combat, and it supports the entire mission of the church. The official designation of today's saint, St. Therese of the Child Jesus, as patroness of missions, that young Carmelite doctor hidden away as love deep in the heart of the church, speaks volumes about the church's own understanding of her priorities. There is a real danger, again, that a renewed emphasis on the church as missionary might degenerate into mere activism. If, as the Holy Father insists, ecclesial self-referentialism is a fatal mistake, so, it stands to reason, is an overemphasis on the business, the busyness of outward works, perhaps even leading to another kind of Promethean Neopelagianism, to use that most curious Bergolian <laughs> phrase, that is so forcefully denounced in Evangelii Gaudium, a worldly notion of mission which acts, actually subverts the primacy of God and reverses the proper order of adoration and contemplation over the various outward works and projects of outreach or social justice. Then, as the Pope has also said, the church becomes little more than an NGO, an international charitable agency like UNICEF or Oxfam. If the church is anything, she is not a religious version of the Peace Corps. The very existence of purely cloistered contemplative religious in their faithful and fervent devotion to their daily round of prayer keeps the church from falling into, as the Pope says, a kind of spiritual worldliness, an anthropocentric immunitism, an empty activism, which having the outward form of piety denies the power thereof. Monasteries, by contrast, are perennial reminders, in the words of Sacrosanctum Concilium, that in every aspect of the church's life on earth, the human is directed toward and subordinated to the divine, the visible to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come. Paragraph 2. There can be no question, wrote Dom Claude Pfeiffer, that 
for a monastery to engage in external activities would not only be an inversion of values, but would even vitiate the exterior apostolate itself by depriving it of its real source of supernatural life. The life of solitude, prayer, and asceticism flowing from the liturgy and returning to it is the primary contribution of monks to the apostolate by their very nature, the very nature of their life and role in the church. A word, if I may, before we go on about our common notion of action versus contemplation, in which we today regard the apostolic as the outward works of evangelism or service to those in need. Certainly this can be a useful, if relatively modern, distinction, but it is entirely foreign to the monastic tradition, and this point helps us to grasp more deeply precisely how the cloister contributes to evangelization. According to the more ancient understanding, the cloistered monastic life is the apostolic evangelical life par excellence. Before the rise of the great mendicant orders in the high middle ages, my apologies father, <laughs> monasticism was seen by all as the fullness of apostolic life in the church. This understanding, so foreign to us, is based on the fact that monastic life is a literal imitation of the life of the apostles as described in the second chapter of the book of Acts, the common life in which the breaking of bread and the prayers take center stage. For the father's apostolic evangelical life lives in the cloister, and only then does it spill, spill over into outward works of mission. That this is the case is abundantly shown by the almost single-handed conversion of Europe by the monks, both pre-Benedictine and Benedictine. History is resplendent with examples of contemplatives who almost by accident, and quite reluctantly in most cases, were thrust into the role of missionaries. One thinks of Patrick, Augustine of Canterbury, Boniface, Columbanus, Ansgar, Willibrord, Cyril and Methodius. Hence the saying, monks brought Europe to Christ through the cross, the book, and the plow, the book being the Psalter, which, as we have seen, John XXIII identified as the primary form of the monastic apostolate. Speaking of the example of the early Irish monks, Don Mark Daniel Kirby declares, the missionary is born of the monastery. The implantation of monastic centers, writes Don Kirby, of hearths ablaze with the divine praise and radiant with holy learning has always led to the birth and rebirth of cultures shaped by the gospel. Wheresoever the praise of God is intoned by day and by night, there will the seed of the word of God sprout and grow and yield an abundant harvest. So far, I have been speaking of monasticism in general. The Christian monastic tradition, whether of East or of West, has given eloquent witness in all ages to the primacy of God through the sacred liturgy. The title of my paper mentions specifically Benedictine liturgical ideals and what they might have to offer in terms of our understanding of the evangelical task which is laid before the contemporary church. I've already mentioned perhaps the most famous of these liturgical ideals, that nothing whatsoever is to be put before the work of God. 
that is before the work which God does within us, day by day, hour by hour, soul and body, the celebration of the eightfold divine office and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The monk, like the boy Jesus, is the man who is always about his father's business, seeking him always in his holy temple. The Opus Dei is, in the words of Dom de Lat, the work which has God and God alone for its direct object, the work which magnifies God, the work which works divine things, the work in which God is solely interested, of which he is the principal agent, but which he has willed should be accomplished by human hands and human lips. St. Benedict, continues Dom de Lat, places the regulation of the liturgy in the forefront of his legislation, that he regulates this public prayer with more precision and care than anything else, leaving to individual initiative the measure and manner of private prayer, that he urges us finally to set nothing before the work of God, in fact, all other monastic occupations depend upon this. The liturgy fixes our whole horarium. It claims almost all the hours of our day and those of the best hours. It is no secret that Benedictines have long been regarded in the church and indeed have long regarded themselves as propter coram for the choir. The proper and distinct work of the Benedictine, writes Dom de Lot, his portion, his mission, is the sacred liturgy. For the monk, the liturgy is at one and the same time a means of sanctification and an end, but it is especially an end. This attitude, rooted in the rule and developed in the course of the Middle Ages, especially under Carolingian and Cluniac influence, eventually placed Benedictines in a unique and providential position to be the original leaders of the liturgical movement. Unlike earlier expressions of monastic life, such as the Egyptian or the Palestinian, St. Benedict places the sacred liturgy center stage. This shows the patriarch's great indebtedness to the urban monasticism of the West, the liturgical praxis of the Roman basilicas, which St. Benedict assumes to be normative, and even certain customs of the Ambrosian Church of Milan. The Opus Dei becomes, in the patriarch's mind, identified absolutely with the common prayer of the community. He will have it compete with nothing else, not work, not reading, not private acts of devotion. Work is organized around it, Lexio Divina is ordered to it, and personal prayer is seen as flowing from it. Even meals take on a liturgical flavor, and the tools of the monks are regarded as the vessels of the altar, chapter 31. Likewise, for St. Benedict, prayer, both public and private, is to be an authentic expression of what is or ought to be in the heart and mind of each monk, sincerity, compunction, brevity, purity, and humility. When he insists on the conformity of the mind with the texts being chanted, as well as the conformity of the body, we see what is clearly an, an early expression of what is much later called participatio actuosa, the full conscious and actual participation so desired by the fathers of Vatican II and the 20th century popes. Full conscious and actual participation in the liturgy constitutes a form of conversion 
a turning oneself to the crucified and risen Christ. The example of the monks under the tutelage of St. Benedict can therefore offer much to the Catholic faithful today as examples of this actual participation. For St. Benedict, our participatio actuosa on earth is bound up with, if I may say so, the participatio actuosa of the entire host of heaven in the eternal worship of the Lamb who is slain. In the sight of the angels, in conspectu angelorum, will I sing to thee, says the psalmist, Psalm 137. This verse is taken up in the rule, chapter 19, as an exhortation to reverentia, awe, wonder, godly fear, a kind of self-abasement, a making oneself very small in the presence of the living God. In the year King Ozias died, the prophet Isaiah caught up into the celestial throne room, beheld above the throne a multitude of seraphim, burning ones, who in the extreme self-abasement hid themselves behind their wings for sheer terror of the sight of the thrice holy God. It is no wonder that Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, for I have seen with my eyes the King, the Lord of hosts. Monks, according to the saying of St. Jerome, do on earth what the angels do in heaven. And the same goes for all of the priestly people of God. Or in the words of the cherubic hymn of the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, we mirror in a mystical, though very real way, the cherubim chanting with them the thrice holy hymn to the life-giving trinity, a song which allows us to lay aside all earthly cares that we may receive the king of all who comes invisibly escorted by the divine hosts. Despite all of the hopes for a profound liturgical renewal as a consequence of the ritual changes called for by the council, in the post-conciliar period, the faithful, not to mention spiritual seekers outside the church, have far too often encountered liturgical expressions which run directly counter, not only to sacrosanctum concilium, but also to the perennial tradition of Christian worship. Celebrations which, in their banal, almost secular horizontality, have alienated many souls, especially the souls of those who are more deeply moved by what Cardinal Ratzinger called the arrow of beauty that wounds man. <clears throat> a sense of the mystical, the numinous, the transcendent in worship, Rudolf Alto's Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans, attracts, enchants, and even seduces. Seduxisti me domine et seductus sum, says Jeremiah. Souls who thirst after the good, the true and the beautiful, search in vain when presented with worship which simply mirrors the worldly situation they are attempting to escape. Ratzinger, therefore, calls upon Christian artists, and by extension all those involved in the celebration of the sacred liturgy, to oppose with all their might the cult of the ugly, which says that everything beautiful is a deception. Concern for beauty in the church Pax in pulchritudine is never mere aestheticism or romanticism, as is sometimes alleged. Catholicism 
has always held that there are objective metaphysical standards of beauty, one of the three transcendentals, corresponding to the truth and beauty of Christ himself. No sacred art, maintains Ratzinger, can come from an isolated subjectivity. There is an art form corresponding to God, who from the beginning and in each life is the creative word which also gives meaning. The same must, mutatis mutandis, be the case for liturgical practice, which comes from above, non ex voluntate viri, sed ex deo, and is mediated to us by holy tradition, which grows organically from generation to generation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In a world, and even in many cases a church, oblivious or even hostile to the idea of standing in a tradition, monasticism at its best and most authentic bears witness to the living tradition ever ancient and ever new. A monasticism of this kind can stand as a bulwark against the subtle but pernicious invasion of the Catholic sanctuary by the spirit of this passing world in which the community turns in on itself in a festival of self-affirmation, thus reproducing in itself, in the words of Ratzinger, the self-initiated and self-seeking worship, the self-generated cult for which the children of Israel change their glory into the likeness of a calf that eateth grass, Psalm 105. In this case, says Ratzinger, Liturgy is no longer going up to God, but drawing God down into one's world, leaving nothing in the end but frustration, a feeling of emptiness, no experience of that liberation which always takes place when man encounters the living God. By contrast, St. Benedict, like a new Moses or a new Josiah, consumed by evangelical zeal, ascends the hill of Casino and pulls down the ancient idol of Apollo, the locus of demonic activity which held the people in spiritual chains in order to raise up in its place a temple dedicated to the worship of the one true God. Monks, simply by implanting the Laus Perennis in a particular place, become therefore mighty to God unto the pulling down of strongholds, destroying councils, and every height that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every understanding unto the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10. Now, it's entirely possible that I have spoken too glowingly of Benedictinism, my own spiritual patrimony, as the antidote to the liturgical malaise in which we Catholics of the Roman Rite currently find ourselves a malaise which cannot but affect the pressing task of evangelization because it obscures the vision of the face of Christ in the eyes of both Catholics and non-Catholics alike. The reality is that Benedictines themselves, despite their rich history and their reputation, have not always been great exemplars of sound liturgical principles and have even contributed in many cases to the decimation of Catholic liturgical life in the post-conciliar period. This betrayal is all the more serious since the church has always looked to the Benedictine order for liturgical guidance and example. 
Blessed Paul VI, in his remarkable yet almost completely ignored 1966 letter, Sacrificium Laudis, addressed to the abbots of the Benedictine Confederation, identified certain, quote, discordant practices which have been introduced into the sacred liturgy in certain Benedictine communities or provinces. The Pope means, in particular, the wholesale abandonment of the use of Latin and the almost iconoclastic throwing aside of the entire ancient Gregorian repertory in favor of, quote, newly minted melodies. Papa Montini, no liturgical traditionalist he, admits to being, quote, somewhat disturbed and saddened by the reckless headlong rush in some Benedictine quarters to embrace the liturgical avant-garde. He therefore implores the abbots to ponder what they wish to give up and not to let that spring run dry from which until the present they have themselves drunk deep. To little or no avail, Pope Paul attempted to promulgate official norms to be followed in monasteries, among which were the retention of Latin and Gregorian chant. Quote, we are unwilling to allow that which could make your situation worse and which could well bring you to no slight loss and which would certainly bring a sickness and a sadness upon the whole Church of God. Allow us, pleads the Pope, to protect your interests, even against your own will, lest the monastic choir become like a snuffed candle, which gives light no more, no more attracts the eyes and minds of men. It is not too late for Benedictines everywhere, and indeed monasteries of all traditions, to embrace this their calling in the universal church. In the words of Cardinal Ratzinger, which he delivered to the monks of Subiaco on the eve of his election to the chair of Peter, the same day, by the way, that uh, St. John Paul died, we need men who hold their gaze directly towards God. Only through men who have been touched by God can God come near to men. There are already many excellent monasteries in which the celebration of the sacred liturgy, whether in the usus recensior or in the usus antiquior, is exemplary and luminous. If Benedictines have not always lived up to their vocation in the universal church, they do indeed possess the resources, a deep wellspring of holy tradition upon which to draw and their own crucial role to play in the new evangelization, that is, in the enchantment, by means of the splendor of Christian worship, of the baptized and unbaptized alike, into the beautiful light of the face of Jesus, the fairest among the sons of men. Thank you.